Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start reading at verse 4, and we'll read to verse 6. Just three verses. Actually, let's back up one verse. We'll start in verse 3, because there's a bit of an overlap here. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Lord, bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, having just finished his doctrinal section of the epistle, and having just said, therefore, in light of everything that's been said, to walk worthy of the gospel, walk suitably of the gospel, walk appropriately of the gospel, he now turns our attention to unity. So he's just laid out all the blessings we've been blessed with. He's just laid out the purpose of God, the plan of God, the love of God, and all these great doctrinal themes. And then he says, now walk worthy or suitably and appropriately. What does he turn to? Unity. And what I want us to notice this morning is that the theme of unity actually takes up the next major block in our reading in chapter 4. If you look at verse 3 is where it explicitly starts when he mentions unity. And you read all the way to verse 16, the theme of unity is what he's talking about. So actually, Paul is now causing us to focus on the unity that we have as brothers and sisters. It's not just in verse 3, but it goes all the way to 16. So just visualize it for a second. Two great doctrinal, or two great sections in the epistle, a doctrinal and a practical. And right as he finishes the doctrinal one, he says, okay, now I beseech you to walk worthy of this that I've just shared with you. And what does he immediately go to? He immediately turns to unity, and he dwells on it from 3 to 16. Unity is important. It's important. And think about Jesus. On the night before he was crucified, he prayed for unity, didn't he? He prayed that we would all be one, just as he and the Father are one. So right before Jesus died, he was praying for unity. And right after Paul tells us all the things that we have in Christ, he turns our attention to unity. And that's what he's going to talk about for the next several verses. Unity is important. God wants us to be unified. And if you can take this, that it's unity that's walking worthy or acceptable and in light of the gospel of grace. If we've been saved by grace, if we've been blessed with all these spiritual blessings, and if all you're thinking is individualistically, you're not going to see this, but if we together, as a corporate people, and if you can see that not only have you been blessed, but Wallace has been blessed, Kim has been blessed, Elliot has been blessed, unity becomes very important. In verse 3, we learn two things. There's two things to notice in verse 3. And I did mention this last week. But number one, we already have unity. It's something we already have. It's not something that we're trying to get. So when, when Paul's talking about unity here, when I'm sharing about unity, I'm not saying we need to get unity at all. We don't need to get unity because we have unity. We are unified in Jesus, as we'll see in just a moment. We are unified together. It's not something to get. It's something to keep. That's the second thing to notice. We have it, 
but we're told to endeavor or make every effort to be diligent to keep the unity that we have, the unity we have in the Spirit, and we keep it in the bond of peace. So think for a moment, walking suitably or appropriately or worthily of what we have, we have unity, how shall we walk appropriately and consistently with this? If we have unity together, then let's walk in unity together. Let's walk appropriately in unity. This is what is in his mind. So the doctrinal part essentially is telling us that we have unity and what our unity exists in. The practical part is telling us how to keep the unity that we have. The doctrine says, this is how Nathaniel and I are unified. It's in doctrine. And the practice says, this is how Nathaniel and I can keep that unity and walk in that unity, walk in the reality of who we are in Jesus together. So this morning, I'm going to ask the question, what is the basis of our unity in Jesus? What is the basis of our unity in Christ? In verse 4 to 6, Paul tells us what the basis of our unity is. Having said that we have unity, he now tells us what the basis of our unity is. And this isn't necessarily new. He's been sharing about this in the last three chapters, but now he just succinctly puts it in one place, puts it together. So what is the basis of our unity? Because we have to be convinced first. We have to be convinced that we have something before we'll be willing to protect it, right? So you need to know that you have something before you'll be willing to protect it. And the more valuable you realize what you have is, the more willing you'll be to protect it, right? So suppose you inherited a house and you didn't know that in the basement there was all these treasures and riches. And because you didn't know it, you didn't really care about the security of the house. So you, didn't, you, weren't, willing to, you weren't willing to put in security features and all these things. But once you realize, wow, there's something valuable downstairs in the basement, then I need to take precaution here. I need to do something about this. And so I think one of the reasons why as Christians we don't really care about unity is because we don't even know we have it. We don't even know what it consists in, what's the basis of it. Or even, we may think we have it. I think a lot of Christians acknowledge we have unity, but we don't know the value of it. But think about this for a moment. Paul goes right to unity after saying, walk worthy of the gospel. And Jesus was praying for unity right before the cross. This is a valuable thing. It's a valuable thing. Four to six... I'd like to point out three things about the list here. The first thing is that there's actually seven ones here in this little succinct statement. So he, said, he, he points out seven things in this list that we have unity in as believers. So biblical numerology, not so popular anymore. It used to be very popular. And the Jews had a, a mind for this too. But if you know anything about it, the number seven speaks of a completeness. So essentially what I like to point out here is that there's seven ones or there's a completeness of unity that we have together. Nothing lacking. There's no lack in our unity with one another. There's a completeness and a wholeness. He lists seven things. 
The second thing to notice is that in this list, there's no physical or cultural or geographical grounds for unity at all listed here. Our unity isn't, it doesn't consist in living in the same place. Now, in a worldly sense, often that is what unifies people, is where you grew up and where you were born and what country you're from. And if you're born in one country, you're loyal to it and you hate the guys that were born in the country next to you, you know, with all the wars that have gone on in some of these countries. And there's animosity. Why do you hate the English? Well, because I'm French. Is there any other reason? No? It's just, I'm English, they're French, we hate each other. And I'm unified with the English. Okay? <laughs> so there's a cultural and a geographical uh, unity between these people that causes them to hate the others. But, and often culture too causes us to, to polarize, right? Well, I like this sort of clothing, and I like this sort of style, I like this sort of music, so I kind of congregate to those kind of people, and I sort of push away those other kind of people. When I was growing, when I was in high school, I was really into like music and playing in bands and things. And for some reason, we just, we didn't, like my guys that we hung around with, we didn't like the jocks and the athletes, you know, and they didn't really like us. We were the musicians and the artsy guys, and there was kind of just this cultural divide between us. I don't know why. It's a, there was no unity between us because culture was determining our relationship. So I just hung out with mine, and they just hung out with theirs. Nothing is in this in this list. Our unity isn't consistent culture at all. It's cross-cultural. If we're unified in these things, we're unified with every believer in every culture. You might meet a believer from some other part of the world that is completely different than you are. Can totally not Western. And yet you're unified together with that person. And they're thinking the same thing about you. They're thinking, you're strange. You eat with a fork and you wear pants and you like country music, you know? <laughs> the unity doesn't consist in these things. And it's not based upon our color of skin. So there's churches even in America that will reunify with the, uh, you know, all the whites. We come, this is a white church and no African Americans allowed, no blacks allowed. Well, it doesn't say that here. There's a unity that can exist when we have the unity of the spirit and not the unity of these material things that crosses all culture, cultures, all races, all geographical regions, all everything, everything. There's no barrier. That's a message that needs to be heard in these places and even here in Utah. And I think we allow, we might agree, but we allow these things to separate us too, even in a small degree. But it, if this is a valuable thing, then we'll even hate those small divides, those small things that divide us. We'll seek endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Third thing to notice, which is interesting, is a few of these things that we read actually are, seem to be causes of disunity in the church. So, uh, Look at the baptism. He says there's one baptism. Well, baptism seems to divide Christians. Or one spirit. Well, the, the doctrines of the Holy Spirit seem to divide Christians as well. And there's others as well. Almost all of them you can find what appears to be divisions. And yet Paul says, no, these are sources of unity amongst believers. So that's just an interesting thing to see. 
But we shall see that rather than being things that divide, they are things that unite us. The first is this. There is one body. There's one body. Now, in Ephesians alone, there's a lot of illustrations of the church already that we've seen. We've seen the church described as a family. We've seen the church described as a commonwealth. We've seen the church described as a temple, right? A church described as a bride. We shall see. We haven't seen it yet in chapter 5. The church is described as Christ's wife, Christ's bride. And we've already seen it described as the body as well, as the body. And a body... When Paul says body, he's not just talking about like a collective mass of people. You might say, there's a huge body of people over on that field over there. But what he means is the body, as in a physical body, he's actually likening the church to a physical frame. And if you remember, in, he talks about the body lots in many epistles. In 1 Corinthians, actually there's a lot of parallels between 1 Corinthians 12 and this passage here. But he describes the body even in explicit details like, the hand, the foot, the eye, the ear, right? So Paul's actually speaking about a physical body when he says there is one body. And uh, you'll notice also he says this in Ephesians in verse 16. He's talking about joints and ligaments. Why a body? Why does he bring up this when he says there's one body? And why does he describe the church as a body? A family, when he says family, a family illustrates our common father and our filial relationship to God and our brotherly love and relationship to one another. When the church is described as a family, it's highlighting those aspects of what it is to be a Christian and what it is to be a part of the church. We have one common father. So if I say Wallace and I are in the same family, we're in the church together. It's a big family. We have one father together and we're brothers or we're sisters. Terry and I are, you're my sister, and I'm your brother. So it, it highlights that relationship, the family. The commonwealth highlights and illustrates our home, our citizenship, our loyalty, our responsibilities in that commonwealth. That's what it highlights. So to what commonwealth do you belong? To what home, what country, what citizen Whose are you? I'm a citizen of heaven. It highlights that. And I'm loyal to that. I pledge allegiance to heaven. I have responsibilities. And I have privileges also of that commonwealth. So the commonwealth also speaks of your privileges. If you're a part of that kingdom of God, then you have the privilege of being under the king and receiving all the benefits of being under that king. You can see the difference like in North Korea and South Korea. Who, who is the king? Who is reigning? What privileges do you have in North Korea as opposed to being in South Korea? You know, by whom is the leader and who reigns? So the commonwealth highlights that. The temple illustrates our purpose, worship, God's dwelling among us, what we exist for as a church. The bride illustrates Christ's love for us. So when we say the church is the bride of Christ, what do you immediately think of? Well, a husband loving his bride, excited about his bride, and the intimacy that a bride, a husband and a wife have with him. But a body, a body illustrates 
the organic nature of the church, how we're all connected one with another organically, not mechanically. You can't just screw it in, screw it out. It's not replaceable. It's an organic connection. It also highlights the symbiotic relationship we have with one another. Every one of us need each other to be nourished. And it also highlights our connection with Christ as our head. And if you lose that, you don't have a body, you don't have a a living being anymore. But the body highlights the unity that we have with one another. It's very horizontal in its image. Of course, the head is there, but the horizontal image is strong. A body is one together, but with many members, right? Paul goes into this in detail. He says there's one body with many members, and every member needs each other. Every member is connected organically with one another, works together. You can't say I don't need you. You can't say I'm not in the body if I'm not a hand or an eye. And if one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is doing well, every part does well. You can't just say I don't need an arm or I don't need a leg. Who cares about it? If you cut the leg off, the rest of the body is going to hurt, right? This is what he says. There's one body, and he's pointing to this illustration, organically connected. So if you're a believer, you and I are organically connected. You cannot do without me, and I cannot do without you. You will hurt without me. I will hurt without you. And to divide from me, and to let sin get in between us and make a wall and divide, is to damage our own body, because we're one together. We're one. You have to begin to think of us as one, and not just as, just as separate. The family illustration doesn't do it enough. The bride illustration, all the others. But the body illustration highlights that oneness that we have and that we need one another. So the church is so unique, it actually requires all these illustrations. It's such a unique thing. The important thing to see is the word one comes up all throughout this list. He doesn't just say, we're a body. He doesn't just say that. We're a body. He says, we, there is only one body. Only one. And there's no other. You can't say, oh, I don't want to be a part of this church anymore. I want to go and be a part of that other church. There's only one church. There's only one body. It's like, he's not just saying, well, we're all soccer players. And that's what we have in common. We're on different teams, but we're all soccer players. And that's what we have in common. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, we're all on the same team. There's only one team. And you can't play soccer on any other team because there's only one. Now, what happens if a soccer team is disunited? What happens if I don't want to be on this guy's team and I don't want to pass it to him and I don't want to play with him and work with this person? Is the team going to win any games and go, any, go very far? No, not at all. There's only one body. There's only one team. And you can't just quit the team and go to another because there's no other. And I think we get fooled by this because of all the churches and the denominations. Like in this, even in our small valley, we have multiple churches that meet, right? Lowercase c. Don't be fooled by it. You can't leave one and go to another. You can't do it. You can't be going to one church and say, I'm going to leave these people. I'm going to join another church. It's impossible. Now, you might have physically moved your body to another location, but you are still one with every believer in the valley. There's only one body, only one. 
only one and one only. That doesn't mean there's not diversity of members. doesn't mean you can't have multiple gatherings and things. But those things tend to divide us when really we should be united, even though we don't have to meet together, even though we don't have to be going all to the same building, right? But those, though, even those building differences seem to divide us. They don't have to at all when we get the vision that there's only one body. Corinthians says, the purpose of one body and many members is so that there would be no division and that every member would have the same care for one another. That's unity. When, we got, when we're thinking like that, when we have the same care for each, each other and there's no division. So, number one, there's one body and you're in it if you're a Christian. Just take a look at everybody right here. You are one with those people. When you got saved, God put you into the body. It says you've been baptized into the body by one spirit. And you are organically connected to one another. This isn't mechanical. You are organically connected. And if one member hurts, each member hurts. So this is your unity. You're one in one team, in one body, together. Will you keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. <clears throat> Secondly, there is one spirit. Now, like I said, spirit tends to divide, right, in the church. We have a very common division in the church. We have those who are Pentecostal, and they say that the spirit is for today, and that if you don't believe that, well, then you might not even be a Christian, they say. Or you might be a Christian, but just stay away. Don't poison us with your cessationism. And then you have the other side is cessationism. Cessationism coming from the word cease, meaning the gifts and the spirit have ceased. And so that's a huge source of division in the church today. Whether you believe in the Holy Spirit and his gifts today, or whether you don't believe in the Holy Spirit and his gifts today. And people divide over those things. And sometimes they say, well, those people are demon-possessed if they think they can speak in tongues. They're demon-possessed. They're not even Christians. Or maybe they are Christians, but we just don't want them over here corrupting our little thing we got going on over here. If we're one body, they're hurting. That's hurting the church when they do that. So how is the spirit a basis of unity? How can the spirit be when he lists here? There's one spirit, and it, it unifies us together. How can that unify us in the light of all that division? Well, the spirit is a basis of unity when we realize that it is one, and this is now I'm borrowing language from an, another epistle of Paul, it's one and the self-same spirit, this is what he says, it's one and the self-same spirit that has brought each Christian into the body of Christ to faith in Jesus, and that works in each believer, even though that may look differently, even though that might look different. So Paul's actually dealing with division in Corinthians. Again, I'm going to refer to 1 Corinthians a lot because they're very similar, but Paul's dealing with division. They're saying, well, you're not part of the body because you don't have this gift of the Spirit and that gift of the Spirit and the other. And he says, no, you don't understand. It's one in the self, same Spirit. The same Spirit works in every believer. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, if you've believed upon Jesus, the same Spirit is in you. The same Spirit has worked in you. And that's our point of unity. It's not how he's worked, necessarily. It's not that one gift 
everyone has to have the same gift. But the Spirit is a source of unity because every believer, the Spirit has worked in them to believe upon Christ and is working in them right now. The same Spirit, though it may be different, though it may look differently in what He does. So you might have someone who has a so-called radical testimony and didn't grow up a Christian and got into all sorts of sin and got into all sorts of bad things and was almost about to die and then all of a sudden God just swooped down and saved that person from the pit, lifted them up and revealed Jesus to them and they saw their sin and they believed on Christ and they, they saved from physical death, saved from perishing and now they're a Christian and rejoicing in the church. Then you have another person who's raised in a Christian home heard the gospel all his life, believed in the gospel, now he's sitting in church and he's hearing that testimony. Like, well, that guy's testimony seems a lot more cool than mine. No, it might be different work, but it's the same spirit that has worked in both people to do the same things, to bring them to Jesus Christ, to bring them to faith in Christ. And the same spirit is now working in both those people. It's the same. One in the self-same spirit. So rather than let the Spirit divide us, we say, well, you don't believe this and you don't have that gift, we should see that the Spirit is a unifier. Where If we believe, wow, we both have a Holy Spirit within us, the same Spirit. God is at work in us, and that's awesome. That's another basis of our unity. When you look at each other, do you only think the Spirit's working in you or in each other? Do you only think the Spirit brought you to faith but do you realize the Spirit actually brought each other to faith, that no one would have come to faith if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit? Nobody would have believed if it wasn't for the being born of the Holy Spirit of God. Do you see that in each other? That's a basis of our unity, and will you keep it in the bond of peace? Thirdly, one hope. One hope. There's one hope. There's not many hopes. This is something that unifies us. Now, hope is something that you can't see yet, Paul said. So when it's talking about hope, it's something that we're all looking forward to, something that we're expecting. We have one hope. Now, sometimes, again, this tends to divide because some Christians think differently about what we're expecting, right? There's a song, I Got a Mansion Up Over the Hilltop, right? Some Christians believe that in the next life, when Jesus comes back, in the next age, they're going to have a mansion. Other Christians think, no, it's just spiritual. There's no mansion. Do they have a different hope? Because they think differently about what they're going to receive. And sometimes they divide over these things. Or some Christians think that in the next age, there's going to be a kingdom. God is going to reign on the earth. And other Christians think, no, in the next age, it's not going to be like that. It's just, I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's not going to be like that. And then they divide over those things. But Paul says there's only one hope. And though we may disagree on exactly what that hope entails, we all have the same hope. It's the hope of eternal life with Christ. And not only do we have the same hope, we have the same reason for hope, right? When Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you have the reason. If I were to say, Elliot, what's the reason for your hope? And then you tell me, I said, Peter, what's the reason for your hope? It would be the same answer. It should be the same answer, right? Elliot's not going to say, well, grace, 
the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Peter's going to say, my own works, why? My own works, you know? No, then he wouldn't be a Christian. The Christian has the same hope, one hope. So do you have hope this morning? Do you have hope? Are you expecting eternal life? Are you, you believe that Christ is coming? Do you believe that you have a hope in a future? Why do you believe that? Is it because of Christ and his grace? If it is, you have the same hope that God has given you that he's given everybody else. And that's something you can be, stand together in, hand in hand, looking forward together for the hope that's set before us and the reason of that hope. So if this is our unity, will you keep it in the bond of peace or will you separate from brothers whom you're going to be spending eternity with? Will you separate with them over sin or doctrinal divisions on these issues? You think you have a mansion? Get out. And then you'll be together in eternity. Maybe in his mansion, who knows? <laughs> One Lord. Now the Lord is Jesus Christ when it mentions this. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that often divides men, not just Christians, is leaders. Who's over you, right? Authorities and leaders tend to divide men. Even when you're very young, the person that's over you, you, you want to be under the best, right? You want Because you're under somebody, you want to feel like you're under the best. And so very common in public school to hear kids say, oh, my dad can beat your dad up, right? <laughs> Why do they say that? Because they want to feel that their dad, their authority, their leader is better than the other person's leader, that they've got a better situation, right? It's just what men do. It's sinful. My dad can beat your dad up. And even Christians. In 1 Corinthians again, you see this. Well, I'm of Paul, Apollos. Well, I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. I'm of Jesus. I'm of Jesus. I've got the best leader. You, know, you might have been saved by that guy. You might be following that guy's teachings, but I'm following this guy's. It's better. They want the best leader, right? For some reason. Or feel like they have the best leader. Exactly. And Paul says, no, don't you get it? Christ isn't divided, and all of these are ours together. But here he says, we have one Lord, we have one leader. We're not divided in leadership. One person might say, well, I follow John Calvin, you know, I follow John Wesley. Or I follow... No, we've, we, we have one Lord, one leader that unites us. Can you imagine two soldiers on a battlefield and let's say they get into discussion about whose general is the best. And they, because they feel proud of being under this general, you know. Oh, my general's won so many battles, and my general's this. And they're yelling and get so heated, they get into a fist fight. They get into a fist fight. And then all of a sudden, the general comes by, and he makes a command, and they both realize they have the same general. Oh, my goodness, it was the same guy. We just didn't know each other's faces. How silly. Now they're marching side by side together. You know? That's what it's like when Christians argue about who's their leader. Because Christ comes along and he says, get in line, you know, or this way or that way. And it's like, we have one Lord. Why are we arguing about who's leader? 
we have. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, and he's the Lord of all, Lord of each believer. Do we see each other as having one Lord? And do we realize that if we separate from a brother, then we have to deal with the Lord of that person? Like Paul says, don't judge, don't judge your brother. Who his own master he stands or falls, right? If you criticize a brother, you're criticizing your own companion, your own your fellow soldier, and the Lord is his Lord. He, the Lord will take care of that person. You boast about how the Lord takes care of you. Don't you believe that the Lord also takes care of his own? We have one shepherd and one Lord. Do we see that about other churches? Maranatha, Emmanuel, All Saints, Valley Church, right? We have one Lord, one commander, one shepherd. Why would we separate? An army that is divided just cannot stand. This is our unity. We have one leader. So you don't have to say, my dad can beat up your dad. Will we keep it in the bond of peace? One faith. Now this is very important. You realize he says here, there's only one faith. If you don't have this faith, then we don't have any basis of unity whatsoever. There's only one faith. Now that can be taken two ways. We can say in, in a subjective way or an objective way. There's only one faith. There's only one kind of faith. There's only one strength of faith. And everyone's supposed to have it. Every Christian believes the same way. They believe in the same strength of faith. Is that what he's saying? There's only one faith. Terry believes this strongly and Eli believes this strongly. I don't believe that's what he's saying. But what he's saying is there's one object of faith. There's one faith. There's one thing that we believe together. Not how we believe it, but what we believe. And that is, of course, the gospel of Jesus. That's very clear. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, If anyone preaches something rather than what I preached unto you, let him be accursed. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, if you don't believe the gospel the way that I believe it, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. There's only one faith that's been delivered to the saints. There's only one true object that you can believe. And if you don't believe it, you're out. And sometimes as Christians, we kind of peddle around that issue. We don't think it's very tolerant to say that, right? I mean, it's almost bigot, like a bigot would only say that. If you don't believe the way I believe, you're out. And that would be intolerant and arrogant if you were to say that about many things. But about the gospel, we need to say that. We need to say that about the gospel because Paul said it. And if we believe the same gospel as Paul, then we need to believe it in the same way, exclusively. It's this gospel, or it's not the gospel. There's only one. In 2 Corinthians, he says there's another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel. I'm afraid Satan's going to deceive you to take you away from it. There's only one. It's exclusive. One faith. If you have it, you have it. If you don't, you don't. And this is to unite us. The gospel, of course, is that we are saved from our sins and from hell and from the wrath of God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins and by simply trusting in that and not by any works or merits of our own. That's the simple gospel. Christ died for us. He rose from the dead. Whoever believes, righteousness is imputed unto them. 
That's the one faith that unites us as believers. We can look at one another. We can realize we stand together in that. We might disagree on some other things, but in this is the basis of our unity. If this is the basis of our unity, then we can be unified with those brothers that we disagree with. It seems like a lot of Christians like to believe new teachings and other teachings so that they can stand out among, away from the brothers and the rest. Well, they like to bring some new teaching and say, look, here's a new teaching, here's another teaching. It makes me different than you. It's Christians just fly after these teachings, it seems. Many do, not everyone. But why do they do that? Because they want to be unique. But rather, doctrine and faith in the gospel should bring us together. We shouldn't want to look for some new teaching that can separate us. We should want to stand together in the one faith that unites us together, despite all differences. Amen? One faith. So, another point of unity we believe the gospel together and we stand united in that. And many times, another place in Philippians 1, Paul says, very similarly, he says, I want you to live in a way that becomes the gospel. Sounds just like Ephesians. And what's the next thing he says? Standing together with one mind, striving for one gospel, for the truth of the gospel. That is what he's talking about here. How do you live in a worthy manner of the gospel? to stand together in the gospel, striving together with one mind and not separating over disagreements in secondary things. That would not be appropriate. One baptism, the second last one. Well, is it sprinkling or is it immersion? It says there's only one. There's only one baptism, right? And so it's immersion, right? And so all those sprinkling Christians are not really Christians, right? See, this, these are things that have divided believers again. How do you baptize? Because there's all these divergent views. Do you do it three times? Do you do it once? Do you immerse? Do you sprinkle? Do you do it in the name of Jesus? Do you do it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Paul's not talking about how you baptize. Because if he was, it would cut off all the, these believers who believe in Christ, right? And then it would become modalism. Just how are you baptized? Because that saves you. It's this magical experience you go through in the water. You just get baptized a certain way, you say the right thing, and boom, you're saved, you know, born again. No. When Paul says one baptism, he's not talking about one way to baptize. But what he's saying is, is there's one unification with Christ that takes place. Whether you're baptized, whether you're sprinkled, or whether you're immersed, whether you're dunked three times or five times or eight times or 80 times, if you're baptized, you're unified with Jesus Christ by faith. And you're also unified with one another. You're baptized into one body. It's a spiritual thing he's talking about here. And it doesn't matter how you do it, but it's that spiritual thing that takes place when a person believes and identifies with Christ. They're unified into the body and with each other. One baptism. That's our unity. Do we separate over 
different forms of baptism or when we see another believer, however they're baptized, do we recognize the fact that they have been baptized into the body of Christ, into the death of Christ, into the life of Christ, and into my life. Together, we're one. Do we see each other like that? We've been immersed into each other and into Christ. So baptism, rather than dividing, is something that unifies us together. Will we keep it, the unity of that spirit in the bond of peace? And lastly, in verse 6, Paul says there's one God and Father of all. One God and Father of all. I don't believe he's just speaking generally about mankind here, but he's still talking about the Christians. Because God isn't the Father of all, right? The Father of the believers and those who have been born again. Here he's talking about what unites us as Christians. He's not now relapsing and talking about mankind in general. Though we know God is the God of all, here he's focusing on the Christians and he's saying we all have we have one God and one Father. All of us believers together. There are only two kinds of people in this world. There are the atheos, which we talked about in chapter 2 verse 12 those people who are Gentiles without Christ and without God, right? They're actually without God. But if you're in Christ and you're that true Jew and you're in the commonwealth and you're in the church and you're in the body, you're in the family, you've been adopted, you're not atheos anymore. You're not without God. You are with God. God is with you. God is your God. And remember when Jesus was ascending, he said, I go to my God and your God, and to my Father and your Father together. Do we see that as believers, we have God, and we have one Father, that Miriam's not without God, and the God that Miriam is with is the God that's with me. And what an awesome thing that is to have God in this life. What an awesome thing. I'm not talking about people who think they have God, as we discussed in chapter 2, there's many people who think they have God, but they're really not God. But if, as believers who know Christ, we really do know God because we've known God through Jesus Christ and God has made us his own. This is what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, as Christians, something unites us here that's wonderful. We have God together and we have one Father. And the things that he lists here also unite us God is above all and through all and in all. When we think about one another, when you see each other, do you think that? Not only do they have God, but God is over them, God is through them, God is in them. You know what that means? If you separate from a brother, you're in a sense separating from God because God is in that person and over that person and working through that person. I'm not saying you're actually separating from God, but you're trying to. You're trying to turn your back on that which, is, which God indwells. But usually we forget that a fellow believer has God as his father and as his God, and God's over him and God's through him and God's in them. And if we remembered that, we would not separate. How dare we would sep- We wouldn't dare separate with a b- believer when we saw them this way. God has embraced that person. Why would I run away from that person? God embraced them in all their sin. 
why would I run away from them because of some sin? It's such a minor, trite thing often. Solomon says this about this verse, that what God is to the Christian people, this is describing what God is to the Christian people in his dominion over them and his gracious operative presence in them. So why would we separate from a person whom God is lovingly, graciously interested in, who is dwelling in? The idea of the temple, again, of God's presence dwelling and us worshiping him as, as having our purpose in being unified. Imagine a temple where all the stones wanted to break away from one another. You wouldn't have a temple. To have the temple of God, as the, to be the temple as the church, it requires unity. We have to have unity in order to be the thing that God wants us to be as a corporate body. We have to have unity. And as long as we don't have unity, we're not being that temple that God wants us to be. And you know what is the, what keeps away unity? Is breaking the bonds of peace. It's the bond of peace that keeps us together. It's not enough just to realize we have this unity. It's not enough just to read 4, 5, and 6 and to recognize, okay, there's all these bases of unity. Yes, yeah, certainly we have this unity with one another. The next thing is we have to endeavor to keep the unity, to walk in the unity, to walk appropriately with that position that we have with one another. And that is done in the bond of peace. That is done in practice by learning to live peaceably with one another, learning to live in grace with one another, realizing, like I said last week, sin doesn't have to separate us anymore, just like sin doesn't have to separate us from God. Sin doesn't have to separate us from one another. Christ is our peace that can break down all dividing walls between us. Will we live in that peace? Will we walk in grace and unity with each other and, and keep that unity and be that temple? Or will we just continue to divide over things that don't even form the basis of our unity? What will we see? The unity of the spirit or the unity of culture? The unity of the spirit or the unity of uniformity or practice and behavior and doctrine? What is the basis of our unity? We've seen it and will we keep it in the bond of peace? That's the question. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for unifying us together. It's just such an awesome privilege, such an awesome thing you're doing in us, Lord. Thank you for making us a temple, for building it right now. Thank you for teaching us that you're doing this and teaching us what the glue is that keeps all the, the stones together, Lord. Thank you for the peace that comes to us through Jesus Christ that we can have total peace with God and total peace with one another through grace, through righteous grace. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to see from heaven's perspective, to see in the spirit and to recognize the unity that we have and the value of the unity that we have, Lord. May we keep it in the bond of peace. May we be diligent to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.